This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, for this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl, we get stuck into some big topics. Time-space continuum, Earth's magnetic field, mining on the moon, and we even had one caller doing a science experiment with a fly, and he ran us through it. I'm Ash McGregor. Let's get into it. How are you, Dr. Carl? Uh, Very well, thank you. Uh, And I've just been to London for the weekend and I have no jet lag. You've been to London for a weekend? Yeah, I did gigs at the Royal Institution, Nature, New Scientist, New Scientist. Wow. uh, uh, For a couple of thousand people and and it was a lot of fun. Wow, that is crazy to me because it feels like, you know, you're flying so far to get there, you just do it for a weekend. Good on you. And I've got no jet lag. How does that happen? Well, I've got a special treatment that I learned from a Formula One doctor. Wow, okay. So Formula One, uh, Mm -hmm. you've got a team of about 50 people. Mm. You've got a couple of billion dollars worth of stuff, Mm. uh, a couple of hundred tonnes and a team of 50 people and you shift every two weeks across time zones and you've got everybody is there to support the pilot because the person who's driving at 350 kilometres an hour, they're not a driver, they're a pilot. Yeah. Right? And nobody's allowed to be anything except perfect at all times. Everybody has to be a top performance, right? Yes, that's a good advice. Okay, right. So... um, the first thing is you get a lay flat seat and the way you do that is you get several credit cards going where you can get 100,000 points. You, you swap them over, uh, you get one every three months and you get rid of them at 11 and a half months and you picked up 100,000 freaking fly points and when you ring up to cancel, they're not sad. They know it's just business. They yeah. do it to sucker you in, so that's okay. And 128,000 points to get your business class to Europe, right? Uh-huh. So first thing, lay flat seat. Second thing, always land at sunrise. Third, take, and I feel awkward about this, but I personally take about 25, 30 milligrams of melatonin nine hours before sunrise. I don't recommend this for anybody else because that would be giving medical advice, but that's what I do. I learned this from the Formula One driver. Oh, you don't do it. You might have bad things, but I, that's mm. what I do it. And that kicks my body across, but it can't kick my brain across. Uh, that'll kick my brain, but it can't kick my body. If I've got food in my tummy, it can't kick across. Yeah. So on the way back, on the way back from London to here, uh, what I had to eat for 24 hours was a decaf cappuccino. That's the whole thing. Right. The and whole was, day. That, that was oh, it for the whole 24 hours. But I'm I slipped starving. all the way. But I slipped all the way. And then uh, I landed yesterday morning and then I had a normal day yesterday. Felt tired at about 10 o'clock. Went to sleep. Woke up at 6.30. And my wife was saying, you slept better than I did. That's yeah. unfair. You have it really down to a science, Dr. Carl. Well, I learned from the Formula One. And and the other thing is that when you land at sunrise, you try to catch a sunrise and a sunset and walk around in the daytime and Mm. start eating on the local time so you kick yourself into that local level. Mm. And at no stage I feel tired in the afternoon or suddenly. I did wake up one morning at about 2 o'clock, so I just had another melatonin and went back to sleep again. And so in in that, the other thing is, oh, you can't be tired because I was away for six nights. Yeah. Thursday till Thursday night till Monday night and Tuesday night. So I had to have 48 hours sleep. I actually had 52. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You are wild. To have jet lag, you know, to get over it, you have to be so regimented. So if you can just do yeah, that you, you and not even have, get it into your body. You can't have any of the delicious food on a plane or in a lounge yeah. or you can't have any alcohol. Especially if you're buying bus- going business class. Yeah, you well, want to reap the benefits. Yeah, but no alcohol, zero alcohol because yeah. alcohol is a poison. The latest research is that there are no physical benefits and only harm However, there are psychological benefits. So if you just have a little bit, mm. it'll make you feel a little bit more relaxed in some cases. If you do without it, that's fine. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, we've learned something there. We're already getting into the questions, but let's kick it off. We're going to kick it off with a big one. We're just going to start 
with a huge question from yeah. Jessica in Ghana Country, Adelaide. Jessica, Jessica space-time continuum. Let's do it. What's the question? Well, if we managed to develop a device that would handle spaghettification and went into a black hole, would we catch? Would if we saw footage from this device? How quickly would it get to our planet? And would we see anything? And what would we see? Could you explain spaghettification? Spaghettification. If you go into a black hole because of the gravity pull, it would stretch you, but you wouldn't see anything happening until it was too late. So, um, with regard to say me and the sun right now. My head, if it's daytime, is a little bit closer to the sun than my feet, but the difference in the gravitational field is not much. And even if I were to get close to the sun, there still wouldn't be much of a difference in gravitational field between my head and my feet. But if the gravitational field comes from something four times the mass of the sun and is concentrated in a volume of zero, and I get fairly close to it, there can be a big difference between my head and my feet, and I get stretched, hence the name spaghettification. So if you're falling into a black hole, what happens is that for you, time slows down until you get to the event horizon where the escape velocity is equal to the speed of light and then time slows down more and more. So from your point of view, you never actually die. You never actually vanish. You don't actually go into it. But from outsider's point of view, I think you fall into it. We need Geraint Lewis to help me on this one. I'm sorry, Jesse. I think I failed you on this one. What do you think happens? No, there's no failure, just learning. (laughs) That's right, Jess. No failure, just learning. You're awfully I kind. The best thing to put this camera in would be a rubber ducky because they're awesome. <laughs> I think that's an entirely reasonable point of view upon which to base your ethical values. Mm. I love rubber duckies because they're awesome. Jess, love we you, like Jessie. you. You can stay around. <laughs> you love you. Kate, in um, Melvin, Kate, what's your question? It's a question from my kid, actually, who wants to know. Uh, why do cold things steam like hot things do? Give me an example, could you? Um, well, we were eating dinner, so it was hot food that was steaming. We talked about that and kind of were okay with that. But ice, look, you know, ice or an ice cream can often look like it's steaming as well. Ah, okay. Firstly, um, steaming is the common word, but it's uh, wrong from a scientific point of view. But that yeah. doesn't matter because what goes on in real life is different from what goes on in science. Like, for example, you can't put a wave or love in a bottle. Mm. They're, they're, they're dynamic things. They're both real. Mm. So, okay, so with regard to the steaming, you're not actually making steam because steam is a gas that exists only above 100 degrees C mm. at normal room pressure. But what you're seeing is water molecules in the air condensing. So in the case of hot food steaming, what's happening is the water molecules are very hot. They come off the food uh, at, say, 70, 80 degrees C, and then they cool down suddenly and they coalesce into little tiny droplets. And what you're seeing is tiny little droplets of water in the air. You're seeing the other thing in reverse when you've got some ice cream, and you put, which is delicious, by the way, and you put it on a plate. Now, look, where do you stand on ice cream, by the way, uh, Dr. Ash? I love ice cream. Okay, but what about... I'm in the take it out of the fridge, take out what you want and put it straight back because if you leave it out 
too long in the mm. open, it can warm up and then as you freeze it, it recrystallizes and you get these oh, little yeah, lumps. Oh, yeah, icy ice cream. Yeah. No, it's so, not creamy. Okay, okay so you're in this, the, the part that takes it out of the freezer, puts take what you need and put it straight back in absolutely, again? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, I'm glad we settled that. Okay, moving right on. So if you take some ice cream out of the fridge and then you put it into a bowl, yeah. the air is at, say, 20 degrees C and the water molecules, there's a whole bunch of them uh, floating around. Um, as the temperature drops... They're, as they get close to the ice cream, as the temperature drops, their movement slows down. Now, there's two things happening with water molecules. One is that they're trying to attract each other because they have positive and negative charges. And the other one is that they're trying to get away from each other because they're mm. jittering of high temperature. When you drop the temperature down, the jittering slows down and their attraction becomes greater. So they stick together. And so you can see little tiny water droplets in the air immediately above the ice cream, yeah. which is a good excuse for the, you to go then and eat it. Is, is that kind of help, helping, the, the steaming over the cold food? Kate, does that make sense? Yeah. Dr. Kate? Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm going to have to uh, listen back to this with my kid. He'll love it. Yay. Oh, That's you, the Kate. way. That's the way, Kate. Perfect. Glad we could thank get that you. out there. we got one more from Ewan out of Hobart. Ewan? What's your question? Uh, good morning, doctors. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Ewan. Um, my question is, is that when the Big Bang happened, I heard that it was a lot warmer in the universe. So yep. instead of it being like negative 200 degrees or whatever it is up in space at the moment, it was once like zero to 100 degrees. Oh, much hotter. Like they're, they're saying 10 to the 30, which is one followed by six zeros, which is you say the word a million five times mm. and that's how hot it was right after the Big Bang. Yeah, oh go on. Oh, my gosh. Yep. So like, well, not directly after that, but millions of years later, yep. um, it cooled down a little bit, but it was kind of the Goldilocks zone locks uh, for life. Mm. Um with this in the universe, could you get so this new asteroid that we've just brought back to Earth? Could you find life in there? Because once millions of years ago, it was the Goldilocks zone throughout the universe. Oh, okay, you, mm, man. Yeah, do, have do you, you read heard science this fiction? Um, sorry, pardon? sorry. Do you read science fiction? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what you're talking about here in life in the universe as it cooled down is life not water-based like ours on planets, but life in the plasma of the stars yeah. and in yeah, the like electron cloud of the... Oh, no, 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 different, different, completely different way of thinking. Oh, no, you, uh, imagine a bacterium on your skin. Mm. You live for 72 years, it lives for 20 minutes. Mm. It has no idea of you being a, a conscious living thing with a different lifespan. And in the same way, if stars are living, and there are arguments for saying that stars are living creatures and can possibly have consciousness, there's, how could we possibly communicate with something that has a lifespan of billions of years? Yeah. Uh, it's a different thing. So on one hand, yes, there are science fiction stories which do talk about life existing in various stages of the universe as it cooled down from billions and trillions of degrees down to its current minus 270 degrees. Secondly, with regard to that asteroid, on a pr the Japanese did something called, look up Hayabusa, H-A-Y-A-B-U-S-A -A -A 1 mm. and 2. And in the DNA ladder of life, there are four rungs. And one of them, if you're in the RNA form, is called uracil. We have found uracil from Hayabusa from an asteroid billions of years old. What the heck is one of the building blocks of DNA doing on, on an asteroid? Yeah. What's going on? There's, there's stuff that we don't know. So you're into a big topic there, Dr. Ewan. It could oh, be. Thank you. 
We've had some big questions so far, Carl. Life, the universe and everything. <laughs> Honestly, what I'm excited for here is Dr. Julie, you've got one that we can all relate to. What's your question? Dr. Julie, welcome. Yeah, hi. Hi, thank you. I'm wondering why, why we itch when it's not safe from an insect bite or a plant and how scratching alleviates the itch. Mm. Right. Okay, the second part, um, think about scratch, uh, itch and pain as opposite sides of a seesaw in your brain. When one goes up, the other one goes down. So if you've got an itch, if you then throw a little bit of pain into the system, that overcomes the itch and you've then got a little bit of pain which can override the itch for a while. Mm. At the other side of the coin, if you're coming in an opiate withdrawal, which does happen to some people, um, you will have... You'll be in a state of no pain from the opiate, but you will have itching. That's why the the classic case of, you know, the opiate withdrawal is you've got this itching. So you've got no pain, but you've got high itching. So they're opposite sides of a seesaw. That's a really weird way. I didn't think they were correlated, to be honest. They're sort of, in in the brain, they're they're, they're sort of opposite sides. Secondly, um, the itch can be caused by anything. So sometimes it's caused by histamines. So if that's the case, you can be kind of lucky in the sense that an antihistamine drug can get rid of it, but Mm. it can be caused by many other things. So you can have an insect walking ever so gently over your skin and you get an itch and that's a protective thing in case the insect's carrying something bad. So you can get an itch from that and then there's a bunch of other things where itches just form spontaneously and we don't understand why Um, and we don't have good treatments for them. And there was a case of a woman who had an itch on her scalp that went to the stage of she went and scratched it for so much she went bald on that part and then she scratched through her scalp until she got to the bone ah, and then she scratched oh through the God. bone until she got to her naked brain. No way. True that, story. That, that can't be true. It's true. And so she just couldn't feel it because she was itching so much. That's right. Yeah. Was, she, she had to do the pain to get rid of the itch. was worse than the pain. And, and in general, we can mostly relieve pain and we can often relieve itch but not always. Mm. And that just shows that our medicine is pretty good but it's still a little bit primitive. We've got more to go. So why do we just randomly itch sometimes? Though? Random noises. I don't have a good answer for that. Sorry, Dr. Julia, I just failed you. It might be an insect that just came and landed on you and went away or it could be something from the fibres of the clothing mm. you're wearing. Have you, got, have you yeah. found any pattern there, Dr. Julia, that makes it, these itches just come and go? Mm. No, no, I don't. But I think it happens to a lot of people. You know, sometimes just, yeah, a random spot on your body will just itch for no apparent reason. Yeah, dry and, skin. Yeah, and then, oh, yeah. I hadn't Could thought of that. Be? Sure. Well, I, I, I fixed that by sorbolin, but that's a story for another time. We've already done the <laughs> jet lag treatment this time. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks, okay, Dr. Thank Julie. Yeah, if it's dry skin, Thanks go for sorbolin. Okay. Right. Not sponsored, that one. Oh, no, no, sorbolin is a generic name. Oh, so, is it? Oh, yeah. I always thought it wasn't. Oh, so there's sorbolin and sorbolin with 10% glycerine, and there's a uh. whole bunch of different manufacturers. I go for the one that has a consistently like a, 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 a paste, mm. although you can't have it in in a squirt tube. I, I just personally prefer the paste. The but that's one. Just, and, yeah, and that, that does get rid of itching to some degree, but let's not go into that right now. <laughs> Good to know. Ben in Dr. Hobart. Ben, What's your question? Yours is allergy related. Yeah, hello, doctors. Um, I'm allergic to bee stings. I was just wondering if I also have a higher likely chance of being allergic to other venoms. Ah, mm. so what happens when you get stung by a bee? Uh, the last time I was stung was about 10 years ago and my foot got very swollen. Like I had to go to hospital because of how bad it was. Wow. Did you have trouble with breathing? 
Did uh, your face swell I up? I remember it was a long time ago, but I used to have an EpiPen because of how bad it was. Mm. Really? Probably then. Oh, my God. That sounds like a full-on allergic response. Um, I'm not an immunologist, so I'm going to say definitely I don't know, but it's very complex in the sense that immunology is very complex and that's where all the really clever doctors go into because they're the ones with the mega brains. Um, You can find that at one hand you've got no other allergies or you're in uh, in general allergic to a whole bunch of things. And I was reading the other day that they're coming up with an anti-vaccine. Ah. An anti-vaccine to help people like Ben. So a vaccine will stimulate your immune system to recognise a bad invader. An anti-vaccine deals with the situation where your immune system helps attack yourself unnecessarily. Right. And so, for example, pollen, springtime. It is not a threat, but many people have a miserable time around that time of year because their immune system is being unnecessarily reactive. So they've come up with the concept of an anti-vaccine and starting to develop it for people with mild autoimmune conditions and severe autoimmune conditions of which the... I'm, I'm kind of thinking the bee sting doesn't have anything that actually is bad for you, so you're reacting to it unnecessarily. Wow. It should be sort of something like, uh, I'm sorry, and by the way, uh, it should be something along the lines of you get stung and then, yeah, that hurt, ouch, and that's the end of it. And by the way, the female bee, why does a female bee do this? Why does she sting you in a way that can mean her death? Mm. Um and well, how does she benefit out of it? Well, the thing is that the female, the vast majority of the bees in a hive are female, overwhelming. There's a few males, a couple of hundred, they hang around, they fertilise the queen bee, they, they send them outside to die, they don't need them anymore. Mm. They're all female and they're all sterile apart from the queen. The queen makes her own body weight in eggs every day. Wow. So that's not imagine much of a, that. Imagine that as, a, as your <laughs> job. Right? You can't move. Horrible. And, but there's all these sterile bees... So why do they put themselves at risk? Because the only way they can make sure that they're... This is evolutionary biology talking. Yeah. The only way they can be sure that their DNA goes into the next generation is by protecting the hive. Wow. So they will take a... Wait for it. A dive for the hive. Oh, jeez. I was building up to that. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, ben, Dr. you've Ish. learned something about bees along the way. And bad puns. Thank you. And that there's a anti-vaccine coming. Maybe. Maybe. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Well, does that help you, Ben? Yep, thanks, doctors. Absolutely, no problem. Annabelle, out of Nunnawal Country, Canberra. Annabelle, what's your question? Hi, guys. Um, I was wondering if the plan to mine the moon is going to affect, here, affect us here on Earth, for example, tides and gravity, or is it a good thing and it means that they'll hopefully be mining less here on Earth? Whoa. I, yeah. I, I think it's kind of messy to mine on the moon. Although we do have to become a space-faring or space-going race Mm. because rocks appear all the time. And there was one on Halloween in 2015 where this rock 600 metres came past and then missed us by about the distance between us and the moon. If it had impacted the Earth, depending on where it landed a super volcano, Pacific Ocean, middle of Australia, it would have killed between 10 and 90% of all humans, 600 metres in diameter. But it missed us. If we'd had three years warning, we could do something about it. 
we had three weeks. Yeah. So we have to become a spacefaring race. I, I kind of am not much in favour of mining the moon. So catch me up on that. Why Why would we mine on the moon? Well, as part of becoming a spacefaring race, we don't want to keep on getting all of our supplies from Earth. Right. So you want to get your supplies locally, but you want to do it in a way that's not too messy. And we humans kind of treat the world like a free garbage dump. Yeah. And I have read a paper which says that the true cost of a very popular brand of hamburger, which begins with the word big, mm-hmm. if you if you pay the true environmental costs of it, you'd be paying a hundred dollars. That's a real cost. Per burger. Of, per burger. Wow. In terms of environmental damage and so yeah. forth. So on one hand it makes sense that you can have a, a self uh, conserving, self-running space society uh, if they get their stuff locally. Now, look, by the way, with regard to affecting the Earth, if the moon weighed twice as much as it did or one-fifth, it would still go around in the same time. It makes no mm. difference. But it would have a different gravitational pull. But there'd be no way we could ever make any significant difference. There is an effect of the moon upon the Earth called the tidal effect where the moon is slowing down the Earth and to balance the energy, the momentum equations, the moon is, rota- is, is leaving the Earth at the rate of four metres per century. So, yeah. But uh, apart from that, Annabelle, there's no major effects. What, what do you think about the idea of mining the moon? Oh, well, you know, I was really worried that if they start mining the moon, it would affect gravity and we'd all fly into space. But I'm yeah. glad that that is not going to happen. Um, and so I was also hoping that if they mine the moon, they would obviously mine less here on Earth. But it doesn't sound like that's going to be in our lifetime. Well, mm-hmm. we, we, we could recycle uh, so much more, but it's just a little bit more expensive. But then that's because we're passing the, the word expensive. Look up the, word, the two words, hidden externalities in Wikipedia. And what that means is that you just change Chuck your stuff into, into the environment and let somebody else pay for it. Yeah. Okay. Hidden externalities. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Long time listener. Love oh. your work, Carl. Love Thank your work, you. Dr. Annabel. Grogan out of the sunny coast. Grogan, you have a microwave question. Dr. Grogan. G'day, guys. So, hey. yeah, I've been taking notes on my experience that happened all morning here, Carl. So at 8.55, I chucked some soup in the microwave because I've got to sort twos and at uh, 8... Uh, 58, I've opened the door and very clearly a fly has flown out of the microwave. I didn't put him in there. He just happened to sneak in for the ride. And um, so he's come out the gate hot at 8.58, showing all signs of vital life. He's just flying around doing his thing. 9.07, he stops for a drink by the sink. Um, I left all the variables in the kitchen the same in case like mm-hmm. the, the course was going to throw him off with his experience. But a good scientist. Everything stayed the same. I took the morning off work so I could observe him and also stay in the kitchen as a piece of the course. And um, he's just he's just getting better and better. By 9.21, he seemed to pick up pace by about 43% at a guess. Mm. And um, his coordination's gone down about 4%. But um. he seems in good spirits. And I just need to know, how does a little animal or insect survive such a nuclear experience? Wow. Right. I've, I've even gone to the extent of rolling up a piece of dough, like water and flour, to the same size as a fly and tried to jam it in the door and there's no signs of life. So he was not in the door anywhere, otherwise he would have been squished. So he's come flying out of the microwave after yeah. three minutes. And, and, and was your soup, did it start off at room temperature or was it from the fridge? Straight out the fridge. Okay, really? It was out of the fridge and then when you mm. took it out, was it at a hot temperature, like nice and warm in your mouth? 
Yeah, it was real warm, yeah. Okay, so if the flight went in there at room temperature, he would have been lifted by the same number of degrees, so he would have been way above uh, extinction point. And you took notes on this. Well, I'm still observing him now. He's still cruising around. He keeps going back to the microwave and looking in the doors if he wants to have another go. Okay, well, look, firstly, leave your name with our wonderful staff at the front desk and we will send you a Triple J fun pack because you've actually documented this thing and um, you can quote us as an excuse for why you had to take the morning off work. And secondly, how did it survive? Because the fly hid in the null spots of the microwaves. So that's the thing. He, he, he got away in the safe zone. Okay, so... Where is a safe zone in a microwave? So what you do, they're 10 centimetres apart and you can find them by getting a plate. So firstly, disable the rotatory mechanism. Yeah. So you can hold the plate up in the air or disable it. There might be a button mm-hmm. or you can take the rotating plate off. And then you get a plate and you cover it either with a thin layer of butter or marshmallows. Okay. And then if it's marshmallows... Mate, they go really sticky. Cover it with cling wrap because it'll stick to anything. It's diabolical, right? So keep on cranking up the heat until you see the surface of the butter or the marshmallows begin to soften. At that stage, you pull out your emergency Frankfurter flags, the little cocktail flags, right? Oh, yeah, we all got them. Okay. And then wherever it looks soft in the marshmallow or the butter, poke it in there. And then you look, see these flags and then you stand back and you measure the distance between them. They're 10 centimetres apart, the distance across your feet, across right. your fist. That is the wavelength of a microwave and also of Wi-Fi oh. and also of Bluetooth because they're all up around the same frequency of two and a half gigahertz. Right. So there's hot spots and cold spots. So what they have is firstly the rotating plate so the food goes through the hot and cold areas and secondly they have a fan on the inside, a metal fan with coarse metal blades that spins around to jumble up the microwaves but even so there are still hot spots in the microwave and almost certainly the flies going, oh mate this sucks, I'm really hot. Oh it's cool over here, I'm going to stay here. They are sensible enough to realise to go to a place where it's nice and avoid a place where it's bad. So that's how they survive. Microwaves that don't spin, though, mate, because there's some that, like, the bigger, more commercial ones, the high-end ones, they don't need to spin. So how does a microwave frequency work in one that doesn't need to spin and heats efficiently? They've got a coarse-bladed metal fan. If you take Mm. one, if you find one of those on the tip, just take it home and pull it to pieces, and you'll find that there's a vent on the side of the, into the microwave cavity that's covered by a mesh, pull that off because it's been thrown at you, that's okay, and then keep going down and you'll find a really coarse bladed metal fan. It deliberately has to have a very rough blade, not lots of little fine blades, but big fat blades, yep. and they just shove the microwaves in different directions because they've, they bounce off the surface, they bounce off the metal. So that's how they get the mixing. So the big commercial ones don't have a rotating platter, do they? Uh, no, nah, you just chuck it straight in, it sits on the floor of it, it just doesn't spin at all. How do you know this? Oh, I used to work in a kitchen that had one, a high-end restaurant. Well, you learn something every day. Hayden, what's your question? It's a bit different. Hi, doctors. Yeah, I have found that when I'm underwater, I can actually blow bubbles out of my eye. And I was wondering why. Ah. Right. Never happened to me. Um, there's a group of people called the Tokyo Shock Boys who were very big several years ago and they used to do weird things with their bodies, including blowing smoke out of the corners of their eyes. Wow. 
So it goes like this. Have you ever had the experience of having a local anaesthetic in your eyeball and then a little bit later you can taste something acid, bitter on the back of your throat? No. Have you had that, Hayden? No, I've never had that, fortunately. Okay, so what happens is that the tears are generated mostly by volume on the upper outer corner of each eye and then there's a drain at the inner lower corner of each eye socket called the nasolacrimal duct and then the tears, if there's too many of them, will flow down this into the back of your nose. Yeah, right. If you then hold your nose and blow really hard, you can slightly maybe damage this valve, the one-way valve, and so you can force... Uh, gas up. In the case oh. of the Tokyo Shock Boys, they can force smoke to come out of the lower corner, lower inner corner of each eye. Do not do this experiment at home. All right, just said that. Had to get that out of the way. So in your case, you could have a pathway that the one-way valve is not fully formed in the first place, and so when you're sort of blowing underwater, the pressure is enough to release bubbles from the inner corner of the. Is it the lower inner corner of the eye? It is. Yeah, only the bright eye too. By the way. Ah, yeah, so. But the low- huh. Wow. Um, you, you are a special person. I wouldn't recommend blowing smoke or vape because we've just found out that vapes actually, in the first year after you take vapes, uh, we've already found that you get a significant increase in the amount of coughing and uh, asthma and infectious mm. diseases, and that's just in the first year. So we're beginning to see the, the, the tidal wave coming with the long-term effects further down the line. Mm, Hayden, I think you've got to watch out, man. Yeah, so you, you're a lucky boy, Hayden. I don't know what you can yeah, do with this party trick. Me. You're a special boy. You have a minor superpower. <laughs> lucky me. Special boy, Hayden. You're a special boy. Watch out. Hey, we got Beck in Canberra. Beck, are we going to debunk a fact your boyfriend read online? Hey, doctors. Dr. Yes. Yeah, so Beck. he read online that you are less likely to get as badly sunburned if you go outside in bright sunshine if you're not wearing sunglasses because there's like receptors in your eyes or something that can change pigments in your skin. Huh. Well, wow, it feels like a chameleon. Yeah, there, there is something, there are receptors, there can be receptors for light in your skin. So there's long been the mystery of how you can get certain sea creatures to swim across a chessboard that you've painted on the ocean floor with a grid of white, black, white, black, white, black, and their lower body goes over the chessboard and their upper body fits in with a chessboard pattern. Mm. And as they swim along, the chessboard pattern moves along with them so Mm. it looks like they're invisibly blending into the background but their eyes are at the other end of their body. Yeah, that's crazy. And just in the last couple of weeks, I think it was reported in Nature magazine, we found what we'd call primitive, which is the wrong word, but uh, it means not with a full optical system like we have in our eye, primitive photoreceptors. Right. So there could be some sort of feedback loop involved, but I think it'd be fairly minor. Now, Vic, can you tell me, did your – there's two extremes. At one end, your boyfriend read this in a peer-reviewed journal like Nature (laughs) or Science or it came from Fred on Facebook. Which end of the spectrum did they get their information from? I think it was definitely during a doom scroll. So not doom scroll when you're just endlessly scrolling online and reading random things. You know, maybe it popped up on a social media feed. Oh, yeah. I finally worked out how to deal with that. So the problem is you can go into it and you you suddenly think, 
oh, my hand is really sore yeah. and it's because you've been holding your phone and you've been in it for one hour. Yeah, so it, time's for, just elapsed. Yeah, no so sort. you've wasted a whole hour of your life. Yeah. So th- that's called a doom scroll, That's a doom it? scroll. Okay. Yeah, that word kind of came out of the, out of COVID. It was kind of coined around doom that. Doom scroll? Yeah. When you learn something. I think it was word of the year one year. Wow. So the way I've learned to deal with that mm. is I admit the pleasure of it and I really want to do it and enjoy it, but I say, okay, I'm going to have a break from 11 to 10 yeah. past 11, put the alarm on, and I doom scroll away. But do we think Beck's question has some merit to it? I definitely don't know. Beck, you've got to go back to your boyfriend and send us the link. Was it Fred on Facebook or was it a peer-reviewed journal like Nature or Science or the International Journal of Dermatology? Was it a reputable source or was somebody just pretending to be an expert? There was a case of a person giving medical advice on TikTok who was mm. giving bad medical advice saying mm. that nail polish could prevent COVID and they got fined $13,000 for impersonating a doctor. Oof. So you shouldn't you should no, try can't to believe be everything. Thing you see online. Yeah, and, and I'll make mistakes Beck, too. send it to us. You send okay to, to us. do that? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, will try find it and send it through. Yep. Send it to us. Uh, we would love to get it. Yeah, get Thank on you. to the boyfriend. Ryan and Diamond Creek. Ryan. Burning calories. What do you want to know? Hey, guys. I want to know if, like, when you lift a certain weight and the calories or energy used to lift that certain weight, I want to know if over time as you get stronger, does the energy used to lift the same amount of weight decrease or like as you get stronger and you keep increasing the weight, would the amount of energy used constantly be going up with the weight? Okay, so um, the first thing is that exercise is not a good way to lose weight. Listen to the Wendy Zuckerman Science Versus podcast on this. So to burn off one muffin, you're going to have to spend about an hour on a treadmill. I forget the exact number she gives. You know, you can't outrun a muffin. But secondly, think about the weight. The weight has a certain mass, so many kilograms, and you've got to lift it a certain height. So it needs a certain amount of energy to lift it. So here's the question. Mm. As you build up muscle bulk, and you do, everybody should do pumping iron, especially watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger series on TV about mm. how he do, did it. Yeah. And also his book, Total Recall. I highly recommend both of those. Okay. So uh, everybody should get keep your muscle mass up through your whole life. And they found out that the reason that people get weaker as they get older is because they don't exercise because they looked at people who kept on totally. exercising all the time and they didn't get significantly weaker. They got a little bit weaker but not massively weaker like happens to most people. So getting back to you. So you, you the, the weight needs the same amount of energy to lift it but as you put on more muscle, do you have a better biomechanical mm. advantage or is it just less effort? If it's less effort, then you're probably using the same amount of ca- calories. But if you rebuild your muscles into a different lever frame because you've got greater bulk and you're using a better mechanical advantage. Now, I don't know what that case is and we need a qualified biomechanical engineer, sorry, biomedical engineer specialising in bodybuilding to tell us that. What do you you think on this matter, bearing in mind I don't know? Well, I was just wanted to say you lifted 50 kilos and you always lifted 50 kilos, whether that just always cost you a certain amount of energy or like, yeah, as you got, as you lifted more, was that energy expenditure going up or because it got easier, were you using yeah. less energy? Certainly, it's easy to measure. You use what's called a whole body box where you're totally inside an air-controlled box and they measure how much carbon dioxide comes out and how much mm. comes in and then they'll be able to measure how much effort you put in at this stage in your life and then at later when you've put on the extra muscle. At this stage, I've got to say I don't know, but it's a great question. So we don't know if don't know. effort I, I don't equals know. calories. 
Yes. Yeah, but, but somebody right. might know. So, or, almost certainly there is a biomedical engineer. Like, like bodybuilding is a really good thing to do within yeah. limits and yeah. there's somebody who knows but I'm not that person. I failed you again. Ah, <sighs> uh, no, it's all good, all good. Thank okay. you. Okay, okay. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Dr. we got Ryan. Dr. Ellen on the line as well out of Melbourne. you got a question about dogs and scent. Hi, doctors. Yeah, so I was wondering... When you send a, a sniffer dog to find a missing person, do the particles of the person said need to reach the dog's nose? How so does it have to travel on the wind? How do they pick up the scent and find the person if they're far away? Ah, so firstly, you leave a scent behind you. And I've noticed this when I've been doing some walks on the clifftops with my wife. And we walk past somebody who's got a really strong smell of coconut oil huh. in the air or coconut yeah. vapour. And we can Maybe smell it's fake it. tan. It smells yeah. like coconut okay. oil. Okay, so we, we can smell it for 10 metres after we pass them. Wow. And sometimes more. Yeah. So the scent has stayed in the air and hasn't been blown away by the wind. Yeah. In the case of tracking a person, each person has their own unique smell. And look up on the ABC TikTok or my TikTok, the story about a woman who could smell Parkinson's disease oh, I've for seen that 14 video. years in advance. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, wow. So the first thing is that the dogs have got a larger area of smelling. It's called the olfactory epithelium. So the molecules from that person have to float through the air, go into the nose of the human or the animal. You'll see why I'm mentioning a human in a minute. Go through the nose of the human or the animal and then end up landing on the olfactory epithelium. The dog has an olfactory epithelium, I think, five to ten times bigger in area than the humans, but humans are not useless. So the dog finds you by sniffing down at ground level. And the reason for sniffing at ground level is that the scent is less likely to be blown away by the wind. Think about water flowing in a river. Just sit there at the edge of the river and throw a stick into the middle of the river and it goes, swoosh, it's gone. Mm. But throw a stick right near the shore and it hardly moves. Mm. And in the same way, the air really close to the ground hardly moves. Mm. So they've done an experiment with humans, sorry to do this, uh, where they've put a human on a trolley with their nose maybe four centimetres above the ground. <laughs> oh, God, and then, that then, looks so funny. I know, and then towed yeah. them along. And believe it or not, if you try really hard, you can track maybe one-fifth or one-tenth as well as a dog. You could pick up the smell we, of some people. We could. We just could. on with anyone without a perfume, just pheromone. Well, probably. it'd be easier without training yeah. uh, to pick up, say, the coconut smell of it. Is, yeah. You're saying it's the tanning oil, is it? I feel like it would. Okay, be, right. Yeah. So you could probably follow that for 50 metres, mm. right? And the other thing to think about is, this is just a little diversion, we're heading into the hot times now with summer and El Nino. Now, if you've got a dog with short legs... The temperature near your ankles can be 5 to 10 degrees hotter mm. than the temperature at your knees. Huh. So when you're taking your dog for a walk on a hot day, just think about that and factor it in and just sort of put your hand down there yeah. and feel the temperature. And what the dog could be experiencing could be a whole lot different from what you're experiencing up there. Erin. Oh, absolutely. I'm a dog walker, so we're, we're always very um, wary of the little Jack Russells and the small ones. Yeah, oh, and, we, and when I was at the New Scientist show, I saw the uh, Boston Dynamic Robo Dog. Oh, oh yeah, it, they look scary. Oh, the, the little ones look slightly scary. Yeah. The one that was the size of an Alsatian scared the heck out of me because oh, all yeah. they have to do is move fast and they're just made of metal and we're made of flesh. Oh, my God. Roll you over. But they, they could do amazing things like lie on their back, roll over, and they programmed into it this thing where it's looking at a new human and it deliberately tilts the whole body 
left leg down, right leg down, up and down. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That it, so I was doing that cute, oh, I'm tilting my head to look at you. Ooh, and by the way, I don't when, know how I feel about that. And by the way, with regard to dogs tilting their heads, if the dog is really good at recognising the names of toys, mm. it's probably going to tilt his head 50% of the time when it mm. looks at you, whereas if it's lousy at recognising the names of toys, it'll only do it a few percent. Mm. What this means, I don't it's know. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl. I'm Ash McGregor. This episode was produced by Lou Hill. We'll catch you next time. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.